Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the big stories we've been following all week is immigration at the southern border. It continues to be a problem with the latest epicenter in Del Rio, Texas, as we're seeing thousands of Haitian immigrants that have set up a makeshift camp under a bridge as they wait to be processed by Border Patrol. In the meantime, the Biden administration is getting heat from both Republicans and Democrats for the worsening situation. For more on this latest immigration crisis, we'll speak to Sabrina Rodriguez, national political correspondent at Politico. Since the beginning of the Biden administration, we've been seeing again and again and in monthly statistics from Customs and Border Protection, thousands of migrants arriving at the border. And right now, Biden is still using a Trump era public health order to be able to kick out most migrants without allowing them to actually seek asylum and actually remain in the United States. But, you know, right now, this week, we've seen lots of headlines and it's really dominated, you know, cable news segments seeing, you know, thousands of mostly Haitian migrants arriving at the border. Given the situation in Haiti, a lot of people had kind of been calling that something like this could be happening in the coming months, in the coming weeks. Um, You know, the country saw devastation after both the assassination of its president a couple months ago and a recent 7.2 magnitude earthquake. So the situation in Haiti has been very bad for a while now. And then add in, you know, the majority of the the migrants that we're seeing now at the border actually have not lived in Haiti for a long time. They actually, you know, some of them are coming from as far as Brazil and Ecuador and Chile, where they've been living since the 2010 earthquake. But You know, right now, seeing all these Haitian migrants arriving has reignited the debate about what Biden needs to do at the border. And there's a lot of division about it. You know, progressives are upset with deportation. Moderates want more border security. Republicans are blaming Biden. You made mention in your article, it's not just, uh, you know, you know the, the situation obviously keeps evolving. Right now, we're seeing those Haitian immigrants there. Earlier, it was uh, people that were coming from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. But really, we're seeing an influx from all over the place. Nicaragua figures into this, Cuba, really the whole, uh, as you mentioned, the whole hemisphere is kind of going through this right now. You know, so it, it's putting a lot of pressure on the Biden administration, and a lot of it has to do with messaging the Biden administration wanted to project a message of more of more humane of a more humane immigration system, but they just haven't been able to get that in order. And in the meantime, you know, the messaging in all these other countries is kind of like, hey, let's go right now. The reality that we're seeing is Biden on the campaign trail really promised to undo what he considered to be, you know, Trump's cruel and inhumane immigration policies and just the restrictive policies that we saw of the former the former administration. So Biden, you know, by having that messaging kind of came into office with these high hopes, high expectations, but implementing the vision that he has for immigration, while Democrats across the board are supportive of it, it's very difficult to do. And it's not something that gets done in a couple months or even in a year. It's a process of years to tackle some of the issues going on in Central America or to, you know, revamp the U.S. asylum system. And some of it actually relies on Congress, which we know has, you know, historically been unable to pass 
immigration reform. So a lot of the messaging is where, you know, Biden's getting the most blame right now of him, you know, promoting Republicans say promoting an open border policy. In reality, the United States border is not open. He does not have an open borders policy. But people are saying, you know, whether that's the truth, there's still that perception for many migrants. And seeing, you know, much of Latin America has been ravaged by the pandemic, has ongoing economic crises. Different countries have like are in political turmoil at the moment. That really just puts kind of the perfect storm for what we're seeing. It's not an easy solution. It never has been. And how many times have we heard comprehensive immigration reform over the years? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't happen. No, there's not enough political will to actually make something like that happen. And on the politics side, right, going into the midterms and beyond that, there's some interesting things that the polls have been saying. I, there was a recent political morning consult poll that the majority of people found that they trust Republicans more to handle things like the border than they do Democrats. So that's a, that's a really trouble spot for the administration and for Democrats, you know, hoping to keep power. Democrats privately, one of their concerns, though, is a lot of them are supportive of Biden's vision and they don't necessarily want to resort to any of the policies they saw the Trump administration do. But they want Biden to do a better job of explaining what the plan is, explaining what he's going to do and and doing a better job executing that strategy, because they have to go back to their districts in 2022 when we know that it's going to be a competitive election and they have to go back to their districts and justify what's going on and explain it. And, you know, right now we're seeing, you know, another Reuters Ipsos poll showed only 38 percent of U.S. adults approve of how Biden's handling immigration. That does make it tougher when Democrats are going back to their district to, you know, support the president and, and you know, sell their agenda, whether it's focused on immigration or not. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge problem. Immigration has always been very difficult, but the optics are really bad right now, obviously, especially in Del Rio, Texas. They are flying Haitians out back to Haiti. That's received a lot of criticism. There were just reports of more people coming to that area in Del Rio. So, I mean, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And that's kind of what we always hear. So that's the unfortunate part. There needs to be a lot more done on all of this. Sabrina Rodriguez, National Political Correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. We have some good news for home buyers. The crazy housing market cooled down last month albeit by some very modest numbers. Still, this is an improvement for many buyers that have struggled and been outbid many times. The average number of offers per house has gone down. Less inspection and appraisal contingencies are being waived, and we are seeing more price cuts. For more on why some of these prices have eased up, we'll speak to Nicole Friedman, U.S. housing reporter at The Wall Street Journal. So the market is cooling down a bit. I think it is important to be say it's just modestly. So it's still a competitive market for buyers. It's still definitely a lot more demand than supply, but we're seeing some of the frenzy that we saw last winter, last spring, some of that frenzy is going away. And so part of that is just some buyers are taking a break. They haven't been able to get a home. Maybe they've been priced out of the market because prices are rising so quickly, or they're just frustrated and taking a step back. And so there is a little bit less demand out there. And then at the same time, you know, supply is expected. It's not quite coming back yet, but expected by the end of the year, there's going to be a little bit more supply. Builders are building more homes. Some homeowners are looking at the high prices and thinking, you know, now's maybe the time to sell. And so there's some expectation that it could get a little bit calmer in the coming months too. Now, uh, Nicole, we spoke about this before. I'm looking to buy my first home throughout all of this. And it's just 
so frustrating, right? Especially with being outbid so much. I was one of those people that kind of took a little break from it just to wait for the market to cool down. So this, this news is encouraging, but let's get into some of what we're seeing there as well. You know, so we're seeing the number of average number of offers decline a little bit, which is really interesting. And even one of the things we spoke about before too, people were just waiving all sorts of inspections and contingencies, appraisals, all sorts of stuff, just to kind of win those bids over. The number of those is dropping as well. So it's still, you know, there's still more multiple offers per home. So according to the latest figures, it's about 3.8 offers per home on average, but that's down from 4.5 offers per home in July. And so that's still, you know, every house is getting more than one offer, but it's not quite as competitive. Each buyer has a slightly better chance. And the same with, as you say, people who were, you know, waiving inspections, waiving appraisals, which is risky for a buyer that you're giving up some of your protections and it's a way to, you know, win a bidding war, make your offer more competitive. And now that buyers feel that they have a little bit more leverage, a little bit more control over what's going on, they're taking back some of those protections. They're, you know, again, requiring inspections or appraisals. So that is another sign that maybe the market is coming in slightly a little bit more into balance. Yeah, that was one of the uh, frustrating things too for me as well, because first time home buyer, you're worried about all of those things. You don't want to drop those contingencies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there was tons of offers we made where they say, well, maybe drop it. We'll see what happens. So that's good news as well. Price cuts, uh, which is interesting too. There's a lot of houses that are going up there that are going in now with price cuts. So we're seeing now for four straight months, the number of listings with a price cut has increased. And so some of that, you know, talking to real estate agents, they say some sellers are just looking at the market and they're being way too optimistic about what price they can get for their home because prices are rising really quickly. But there's still going to be a seller who says, you know, maybe I'll just put a crazy number out there, see what happens. And so there's a little bit less of that going on that a seller can just get any price they ask for for their home. So there are more listings. The sellers are having to, you know, reduce the price, adjust the price downward before it actually sells. And so that's another sign that, you know, buyers aren't willing to just pay kind of anything they can. There isn't necessarily that mania that we were seeing earlier in the year. We're also seeing about uh, 22 percent. This is from August of home sales. Existing home sales were purchased in cash. A lot of people still buying in cash. You wrote another report about how there's a lot of startup firms that are helping home buyers win these bidding wars with all cash offers. How does that work? Yeah, so that's a big trend right now is that it can be hard for buyers with a mortgage, which is most buyers, to compete against a cash offer. A seller will often prefer a cash offer because it can close more quickly. It's less likely to fall through because of a financing issue. And so if there's a cash offer in the mix, Even if it's slightly lower, sometimes the seller will still choose it above a mortgage offer. And there are a lot of cash buyers in the market right now. As you said, 22%. Some of that is investors. Some of that is maybe somebody who sold a home in California and then moves to a lower cost market, like, say, Texas or Arizona. And because they sold their home for a higher price in the more expensive market, they could just come in and buy a house in all cash. So we're seeing that as well. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, there are these startup companies that are helping people make a cash offer. So they'll basically, you know, front the buyer the money to make an offer in cash. And then the buyer will go get the mortgage and kind of get the mortgage on the back end and pay the company back. But they had the upfront all cash offer to help them compete. And uh, in your, you know, reporting and everything, are, are home buyers enjoying that kind of flexibility doing it that way? Have they run into any snags when it comes to that? 
So it really depends. I think for a lot of home buyers, it can just be an essential tool to help them win in some of these hyper competitive markets. And so buyers sometimes say they really do appreciate having had that option of the all cash offer because they felt like they, you know, with a mortgage, they just were not competitive enough um, in multiple bid situations. But it does cost money. It's not free, right? These companies are providing a service, but they often take a fee for that service. And so it kind of is up to the buyer whether that is something that they think they can kind of price into their their purchase and they think it maybe will pay off if they can get a slightly lower offer accepted because it's all cash, then maybe it evens out. But it depends, of course, on each buyer's situation. Well, we'll see if the cooling of the housing market continues. Uh, I know it'll be a very welcome thing for a lot of buyers out there. So we'll monitor all of that. Nicole Friedman, U.S. housing reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Here's a story about love in the time of COVID and how difficult it's been. For single people, many relationships started quickly and passionately and also ended just as fast during the pandemic. Finding someone during a time of loneliness made them hold on tighter. But once the vaccines came along, a lot of relationships started falling apart since you didn't have to lay low anymore. For more on these COVID-era romances, we'll speak to Diana Speckler, contributor to The Guardian. I guess it's, in my opinion, sort of the unsung love story of the era, because I think that there's been a lot of attention paid to how COVID has affected marriages. And, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, it seemed like things were not going well. And then later in the pandemic, it said, oh, maybe things are going well. And and those seem to be the stories that I was seeing over and over again, a lot of think pieces on that front. And I think everybody just kind of assumed if they weren't single, that single people were just hanging out by themselves. But in fact, the dating apps were getting more play than ever. There was a huge uptick and people were dating, but people didn't want to date multiple people because it was unsafe. And I think for a lot of reasons, it was appealing to many people to just hunker down in a monogamous relationship. And so people rushed in and things got serious very quickly. Bars, restaurants, cafes, those things were all closed. So things became intimate very fast. Dates at home, meeting people's families right away because you would just join the pod, things like that. So it would go from maybe like a first or second date to like now we kind of live together. Right. You know, I'm lifting a line from your article uh, I, I just think it, it kind of makes sense so much. Many singles scrambled to find a seat. And when they did, they just sat there. You know, you found something, <laughs> something that you really could hold hold on to. And then, boom, I'm not letting this go because it's working for me right now. And, and a lot of the whatever you can call maybe traditional rules of dating, unspoken rules of dating kind of go out the window when things are like this. You know, you don't have that time to go out to the bars and restaurants and get to know somebody. You know, if it clicks right away a lot of people just kept it. That's right. And I think there is something beautiful about that too, because a lot of the sort of rules that you learn as somebody on the dating scene are kind of gamey, kind of manipulative. And for those to go out the window, isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, Don't get physical right away or don't call him until he calls you. Don't text back too quickly. Those kinds of things. I think those were just sort of non-issues. So what happened, uh, you know, a lot of these relationships started very quickly, very passionately. Some of these intimacy things, as you mentioned, you know, right, if you're giving somebody a chance because 
a lot of the vaccines weren't circulating just yet and, and you're going to get be intimate with somebody, you know, boom, as I mentioned, you kind of hold on to that. What happened after the vaccine started happening? What happened after these relationships started getting vaccinated? Because you mentioned at least two or three of them right away, things changed. They felt like they wanted to be free. They didn't have to be shackled up anymore. I think actually they followed the trajectory of any relationship, but just had outside influences or had other factors affecting them. So, you know, for one of my subjects, for example, who has historically had issues with intimacy and closeness, those started cropping up for him more than ever because his relationship had gotten so serious so quickly. So that was one example. Um, Another one of my subjects, her partner, her COVID boyfriend, had donated a kidney early in the pandemic. And so he was being super, super careful because he was immunocompromised. And so their relationship was very insular. And then as soon as he got vaccinated, it was like party time. (laughs) Yeah, that was actually a funny one because uh, he had ghosted that girl at the very beginning. And when he finally reconnected, (laughs) he's like, well, I was giving a kidney to my sister. (laughs) And she made him show him the scar just to kind of prove it. So that was a funny example there. But, you know, and and along with this whole thing, too, right, is uh, some of the bad habits or bad attitudes, things also you couldn't notice with maybe the more traditional dating pattern. You profiled a a couple who once things started happening out in public, he was a little more moody, socially anxious. And because those things weren't happening during pandemic and lockdowns, she didn't get to see that. So that was my subject, Samantha, who had such an intense COVID romance, the guy actually moved in with her, you know, and got a new job in her city and totally left his life to be with her. And it's interesting because he has had severe social anxiety probably many, many years, but she had no way of knowing that because it was just the two of them in a house for so long. So as soon as they got vaccinated, she's very extroverted and social and was excited to go out and connect with people and live life again. And he said, you know, this just isn't of interest to me. So and he left her. You also had a COVID romance that you said ended within two months of vaccination. But one of the things that you made a point in the article, which I thought makes total sense, is you spent a lot of time with this person throughout pandemic, lockdowns, all of that. And you maybe joined their pods, their friend groups. But when the relationship over, now you kind of don't have anybody to go and remember, you know, some of those good times with because that person is gone now. That's just an interesting aside to all this. And I don't know if it's necessarily that I want to reminisce about the good times, but it was a pretty dark time. And, you know, I felt that throughout the pandemic, that was who I was most regularly commiserating with because we were spending all our time together And now I don't know him or the people in his life anymore. And it's just really interesting to think that this era of our lives, sort of darkest time in history, for me, there's there's the only people I can talk about it with are people who weren't with me. There's a little bit of a loss in that, I guess. Yeah. And I bet there's a lot of people, you know, just as the article suggests, right? A lot of people went through the same type of thing here. Diana Speckler, contributor to The Guardian. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.